Hey everyone, welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for faith and life. My name is Tony, and today is episode 81 of the podcast, and I get to sit down with activist turned movement leader Blythe Hill. Blythe and her uh, organization, Dress Summer, has personally changed our lives as my wife and daughter and I and our entire family have now participated in this movement for several years. My wife's done it for seven years. I think my daughter's done it for four. And what I love most about it is the simple yet profound idea, a dress can change the world. In our conversation today, Blythe talks about compassion fatigue. She talks about dealing with trolls. She talks about what it meant to start such a powerful movement and how Dressember is changing the world all over. Um, and it's it's an incredible conversation. So two things I want you to do. I want you to do me a favor and share this episode with a friend. Leave a rating or review wherever you can on iTunes. And also, uh, maybe prayerfully consider joining my wife's Dress Summer team. We're going to put the link in the show notes. You can join her team, be a part of raising awareness for, um, you know, against sex trafficking and human trafficking and uh, just all the things that uh, the world needs right now. It needs you to stand up and and take a stand. So uh, I hope you listen and enjoy this conversation with Blythe and prayerfully consider about how you can get involved. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Dress Summer founder, Blythe Hill. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm here today with uh, Dress Ember founder, Blythe Hill. Blythe, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, I was telling you before we get started that uh, you have been a huge part of our family for a number of years because the work that you do is so important. Um, But I think probably the best place to get started is, can you tell us what Dress Ember is and how it got started? Sure. Yeah. So Dress Ember is an anti-human trafficking nonprofit organization. And our big um, campaign is an annual style challenge where we invite people to commit to wearing a dress or a tie every day during the month of December. Started with dresses. So dresses in December equals dress ember. Love it. Um, and um, in seven years, we have been able to raise $10 million towards anti trafficking work around the US and around the world. So I've listened to you. Uh, you have an incredible TED talk out there that I've listened to, and I've heard you talk about this. Uh, one of the things I'm really curious about is how in your life did it uh, really impact you to go from um, from doing this kind of just for fun. And now this is obviously your full-time job plus some, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> how, how did, how did that transition happen in your life? And, uh, and then, well, let's just start there. Yeah. So dress Ember was initially just a fu- like fun, quirky style challenge. Um, I started it in 2009 while I was in, uh, college. And when I turned it into a campaign, that felt really risky because it, it had been this just fun, light yeah. fashion challenge. And here I was adding this really heavy layer to it to see if we could have an impact on a, on an issue that I care about a lot and had been um, looking for a way to, to make an impact. Um, so it felt really risky. Um, that was in 2013 And I remember setting, you know, what felt like a really ambitious goal to try to raise $25,000. 
and we ended up raising that in three days. Mm. And then, <laughs> That's and then incredible. Raised, yeah, and then raised six times that amount in um, in a month. We we raised one hundred sixty five thousand dollars, and so at the end of that first month, I remember thinking like, oh, okay, people like this. Like I, you know, I, I had been worried for not. <laughs> um, and, you know, this is a much bigger idea than I even realized. Um, so at that point, you know, I was working full time in LA and um, was, you know, kind of a, a part time, not a part time. I was, like a volunteer CEO for (laughs) for the next um, few years, but I registered as a 501c3 um, and we got that uh, certification in about nine months. And then it was about three years later that I, I came on as a part-time CEO and transitioned to, I had two part-time jobs between Dressember and another sort of admin job that I took on. And then another two years, year and a half after that, I was able to come on full time. So it was a journey. Um, it was, you know, um, a labor of love and um, still is something I am just so passionate about that a lot of times it doesn't feel like work or I guess I'm not, um, I'm not drawing on the same sort of energy reserves for this work as I was for any other job. So, you know, just to be clear, it is a job and it is the whole, like, you know, get a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life is not really true. Um, I I mean, I was going to ask like um, seven years is a really long time and it, it took you a tremendous amount of time just to get to a place where you could do this full time. How many times or, or were there times in the middle where you thought, man, I, I'm going to, I don't know if I can do this. Like, uh, wh- what do you do when you hit those moments of like, like has, is um, one of my favorite sayings is, is the juice worth the squeeze? Mm, that's a good saying. I like that. Um, yeah, there were a lot of times where, um, where I felt that way. I think, you know, for, for the first three years, just, wanting and hoping to get to the point where I would get to dedicate a good chunk of my working hours to it. It was never about the money. Clearly no one goes yeah. into a non nonprofit work for the money. It was more time because I was still working full time. And so working on December was just like lunch breaks and weekends and evenings. And I just, um, I wanted to give it the time and the energy that it, that it needed. Um, so it was mainly like being patient um, and kind of trusting like, okay, we're, we'll get there. I just need to be patient um, those first few years. And then the year and a half, two years of being a part-time CEO was super hard. That um, sounds like the worst, actually, if I can just be really honest. That, that sounds horrible. It <laughs> sounds like being a bivocational pastor. Oh, my God. Right? Like, it it's was, just the worst. It was awful. Like, in the beginning, I was super excited. Like, okay, like, it felt like a step towards legitimacy. But it also, um, I think I had expectations and my board had expectations mm. that weren't realistic of 25 hours in a week, you know? Um, and so that was a really hard season, lots of growing pains for me as a leader and, um, for the board of directors, just really kind of navigating expectations and my role versus their role. Um, 
a lot of turnover happened in that season kind of all at once with my board because it was it was this growing pain which a lot of organizations go through of like the initial founding board members to um you know people who aren't my friend my my friends with skills they're um you know kind of a, a level up in terms of like a governing board and a fundraising board and a little more hands off in a in a sustainable way. Um, so that was, that was probably one of the hardest seasons that I went through where, I mean, there was, there was a minute there where I thought I might, um, I might not be the leader of the organization anymore. You know, if, if the, if the trajectory kind of kept going where, you know, this is my vision and this is the board's vision. Um, I didn't really know how all that was going to shake out. Um, fortunately I'm still here. (laughs) I'm still passionate and still have a a really, you know, strong vision for, for where we're going. Um, and I've got a, got an awesome board and, and have been able to maintain most of the relationships that, um, that I had with the, the founding board members. Um, and then, yeah, kind of through that season and, and growing as a leader and learning to handle criticism and the occasional troll that that might, you know, have a thing or, or two to say about what we're doing. Um, there's just, yeah, there's a lot of learning I had to go through. Um, oh, no, and- I know. Listen, I, I've been on uh, December's Instagram account and I've been on your Instagram account and uh, I there's a lot of, a lot of people have opinions about it, especially in this, uh, in this recent season, it seems like has been especially hard. And and so I guess one of the questions I I wanted to ask was, um, how do you deal, how do you deal with the trolls? How do you deal with the hard days that feel like, you know, like, uh, it, it feels so distant from your mission even, right? Because, you know, like trolls are never really like trolling you on how you're stopping human trafficking, right? Like that's the, that's, which is the core of what you do. Right. But, but it's always about the, the stuff that's on the peripheral. How how do you, how do you keep yourself in a healthy place? Yeah, it's an ongoing discipline for sure. Um, I remember like years ago when I mean, December's very first campaign year, there was feedback. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) I wish, oh, I wish I could have recorded your face when you said feedback. That could be my favorite part of the whole interview. (laughs) Man, yeah, there there, people had had their opinions. And so I had to learn pretty quickly, like, okay, how am I going to how am I going to navigate this? Because it's not sustainable for me to um, personalize it as much as I initially did. Um, where Dressember, I felt so enmeshed with Dressember that, you know, this is my, my baby and my, mm-hmm. like the best idea I've ever had. And um, I did have to, you know, in a healthy way, differentiate myself. Like, okay, when people criticize Dressember, they are not criticizing me personally. Mm-hmm. Um if they criticize me personally, that's, you know, a separate, um, a separate approach that I might deal with it. Well, you know, it's all kind of the same where I learned pretty early on, right. like, okay, I've got to construct a healthy 
um, barrier between me and the outside world. Um, this was super hard in the beginning when I was managing everything, you know, as a right. woman team, like I was doing all our social media and using this Royal we, when I, when I talked about, you know, we at dress members, it's just me. <laughs> it's just um, me sitting in a room. <laughs> yeah. And I was, you know, answering all the emails to the general inbox. So that was really hard because there was no way to, um, you know, now we have, we have interns and we have staff who are the ones who are on the front lines of communications, seeing those comments and DMs and emails that might come in and then escalating to me, the ones that um, are actually worth reviewing. Sure. Um, so for, yeah, the first year or two, super hard. Um, and then bringing on an intern just to manage emails and um, social media inbox um, that was like the best decision ever. But yeah, I kind of had to, um, the expression that I learned pretty early on was like guard the gate, Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, if you, whether it's like to your heart or your mind, you kind of have this gate and you, um, it's almost like in meditation where you like observe the thoughts without judging them. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so like, okay, you have this gate and these comments are going by and you, you can observe them, but you don't absorb them until, you know, in mid campaign season, I, I don't want to hear any of them and I don't want to read any of them unless okay. there's like something really timely that like we need to respond to. Um, and then, and then it's kind of choosing like, you know, okay, well, which, what feedback gets in? It's like, is there, is there validity to it regardless of how it's packaged? You know, it might be a really meanly packaged but valid comment and so um my team does a really great job of obviously you know not communicating the mean thing to me but just like oh this is a good point that someone you know someone is criticizing this um you know we just throw away ignore the comments that are just mean without any valid feedback um, so those never make it past the gate. And then the ones that are mean, but valid, um, those ones, you know, are like, okay, this is going to sit outside the gate until, you know, January or February when I have the the space to kind of process this. Um, and then there are comments that are, um, they're critical, but they're delivered really well. And I sure. really, you know, we really appreciate those. I think feed, feedback, especially from our core people, yeah. we want to hear that. And, and that's another thing I do is like, if there's a comment um, that I do come across, whether it's valid or not, I look up like that person in our system, if possible, to see like, is this, is this even a person that has, that has a history with us? Because most of the trolls even if they're like, mm -hmm. I'm, I like, I, I'm never donating to your organization again. You know, that's something we see every once in a while. Sure. And then you look them up and they've, you know, sure enough, they've never made a, a donation to begin with. Um, so there's a lot of fluffy talk that, that happens. But if someone, if someone's making a comment and they're part of our core community, um, though, that's the feedback I care most about. So, um, that's a long answer to, to what it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. I, you know, I think that, I think one of the things that I'm hearing is, is, uh, is you, you do your very best to listen with critical, with critical judgment about what needs to be heard and what doesn't. And then your team and you kind of assess from there 
you know, is this person, you know, a part of the core group or not? And then how, how do you move forward from there? Um, and I, I think that's, that's very good wisdom. You know, I think that's good. Um, what about, what about your daily rhythms? Do you have things that you do, especially during your campaign season, when I imagine that you're basically, your work turns up to a hundred, um, are there daily things that you do to keep your head and heart in the right place? Yeah, sure. There's, um, I mean, really simple things that end up being really important, like getting enough sleep and drinking enough water and taking, um, my vitamins. Um, I mean, it sounds so like simple, but those, those things do really, um, keep me on a, on a, you know, keep the bottom from falling too low. Um, and then, um, I, I love music, so I'll listen to like some particular songs and I am a person of faith. So I spend time in prayer and, um, I, I really feel like that helps kind of set intentions and just acts as like a, a guiding force throughout the day. Um, and then I was doing really (laughs) I was doing really well at running um, since quarantine started um, or shelter in place back in March. And I hate running, but it was like, oh, like getting out of the house, like it felt yeah. just so freeing. And so um, I had a really good running routine going until a couple weeks ago. The weather in Seattle, where I live now, has has kind of turned and I'm... Now, went, you grew up out. in LA though, right? You went from LA to Seattle, is that right? I actually grew up in Seattle. Oh. Um, yeah, I grew up north of Seattle in Shoreline and then moved in high school to Orange County, California, and then moved to LA around 2011. And um, my husband and my son and I just moved up to Shoreline, my hometown, um, a couple months ago uh, for my husband to go to grad school at the University of Washington. That's awesome. And so y- y- you didn't have a family when you started this passion project, right? No. Yeah. I, I was single. Um, <laughs> I, was, I, yeah. I'm curious that the, the follow-up question to that, which is uh, how, how has your family been impacted by how, how are you managing both now? Because it, uh, I mean, I know um, in my line of work, like it's super easy for me to, um, to justify spending more time at work. Cause it's, it's really important work. And, and the work that you're doing is really important work. What are some of the things that you do to, to set good, healthy boundaries in your life as a, you know, as a part of those coping and, you know, heart mechanisms? Yeah, I think it's actually been really healthy for me because I have always been someone who um, it's, it can be tough for me to get motivated work-wise. Like mm. I'm historically a procrastinator and kind of wait until the, the energy and the feeling strikes me and then I'm super productive and just ride that energy wave, um, which has it worked for me for most of my life. But now um, I have to have very clear work hours yeah. and, and boundaries um, because primarily because of my child, but also the health of my marriage. Um, so it's forced me to really like, okay, like I need to learn to be productive from nine to five, you know, none of this like after hours, um, energy burst. Um, so I actually think it's been really, um, helpful in some ways. It's been, it's been kind of a discipline that I've had to, um, step into. 
Um, but yeah, I think just like setting, setting those work hour boundaries, um, and really showing up for what's in front of me, whether it's the work or my family, um, there's always work that is undone. Um, (laughs) but at the same time, like I, I want to be present and I don't want to miss these like beautiful days with my 17 month old son. I just feel the time moving so fast with him. It's scary how fast it goes. Like it's super scary. And, um, feel it. and at the same time, the work that you're doing is so important. I, I'm kind of curious over the last seven years, you've now kind of become a human trafficking expert, um, in, in terms of, you know, how to fight it and the, the partners that you work with and, um, you guys are really big that you you help fuel the partners that are doing all of the the work out there. Um, wh- what has what has that experience been like? Kind of pulling back the curtain. What what started as like, man, this really uh, like is a pain I see in the world and it hurts my heart. To now, I mean, I, I would probably imagine that your email box is filled with like information and facts about this all the time. What's that process been like for you? Um, you know, I, I love learning Hmm. and, um, I mean, it's really, it's really like humbling to be called an expert because I honestly, I think all, all that means to me, or I don't know, like whether you're talking about an expert or a leader, I think what makes a good leader really is someone who's committed to learning and, and, and is not going to get sort of set on one approach or one solution. Um, so for me, it's been just this ongoing learning process and I see that continuing and that's exciting to me is like, you know, in the beginning we thought this was just an issue happening across the world. You know, this wasn't an issue happening here in the U S. Sure. So, um, it, as we learn, as I learn, as my team learns, um, as our partners learn, we, um, adjust our approach. Um, so we, we initially had an exclusively international focus and now we focus domestically and internationally. Um, as we learned about the incredible, um, I mean, incredible is not the word, but kind of horrifying, um, intersection between foster care and trafficking in the U S we, adjusted our approach to include foster care advocacy and supporting, uh, the foster system. Um, as we learned, and there's a statistic I learned years ago that the average survivor of trafficking could have had an intervention seven times before they did. Wow. Um, we adjusted our approach to support training for what we call frontline industries, um, where people would come in contact with victims of trafficking and might not know it because they're not looking, they don't know what to look for. So, um, Uber and Lyft drivers and, um, truckers and hotel staff, um, Mm. really, um, made an effort to, and that continues to this day to support training for those frontline workers. Um, and now something I'm increasingly interested in is um, legislation and policy change and the way that we, the way that we continue to criminalize victims of trafficking in this country, including children, which you'd think like, okay, for 20 years now, we've had um, the 
Trafficking Victims Protection Act, where, you know, by definition, a minor cannot consent to sex and so is a victim of trafficking, whether they're under control of a pimp or not. And yet we continue to criminalize minors um, and adults uh, for peripheral crimes that their traffickers make them commit. Um, so that's something, I mean, the number of victims of trafficking currently incarcerated, we hear about Centoya Brown, Crystal Kaiser, there's just a whole host of them. Sure. Um, I suspect just tens of thousands of them. And that's heartbreaking to me that, yeah. that we're ignoring, um, we're ignoring those victims. Yeah, especially when you consider um, the, just the, how over, overworked our, our court system already is to, to add more work on for people who don't, who were victimized there to get there in the first place seems asinine to me in a, in a, in a weird way. So um, how, how, if, if we're talking about legislations and, and this, this episode is going to release um, after, a, you know, a, a election day, how, how important is the way we vote um, and, and how do we find out where politicians stand on these kind of issues especially given the fact that it, it seems difficult in today's world to find reliable media. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, it's, it's challenge. I mean, it's, it's super important that we vote. Yes. Sure. Yes. No, of yes. course. Yes. Our <laughs> vote is important. Um, and it's challenging to find out um, where a candidate stands because there are candidates who appear to do great things for trafficking, yeah. you know, there's um, funding for uh, for victims of trafficking, um, but at the same time, when you dig a little deeper, um, you might find that there's reduced funding in other areas that are super important, um, like immigrants who are mm. um, victims of trafficking, or um, you know, there's the T visa where if an immigrant is trafficked into a, the U.S. Um, that they are um, eligible for a T visa to stay because they they might have been trafficked in as a child and um, sure now it's ten years later and so are they going to be deported for you know we we want to protect victims who um, there's often a number of overlapping crimes and so if they are scared of being deported which is a very real threat that a trafficker might make over them you know you can't go to the police because you'll just be deported. Um, there is the the T visa, or there's you know supposed to be the T visa protection. Um, so when you look at some of the current funding going towards um, victims and and safe housing for citizens, um, but then some of the the protections for victims who are immigrants, um, that's it's complex. It's complicated, yeah, right. and it's um, unfortunately politicized. Um, I mean, and it's on both sides of the aisle. Um, you know, I um, just reading uh, um, Kamala Harris, it, you know, has been a very outspoken advocate of anti-trafficking work. And yet um, there have been um, prosecutors under her um, umbrella who have criminalized minors. Sure. Uh, who are victims of trafficking. So it's, it's super complicated. There's no such thing as a perfect candidate or a perfect vote. Um, Amen to that. And I, th I think um, 
policies and legislation, all that needs to move forward. And then it's like less about who's supporting it. It, you know, it's like, well, can we all come across the aisle and support a good policy? Um, Yeah. Build foundations. Yeah. So I I love what you had to say about learning and uh, I was really moved and and I want to give your team a lot of props um, because for a long time, um, and, and our family has been with you guys for a long time in terms of this movement, you guys have used the term modern day slavery. And uh, you've recently um, kind of, I, I'm going to say backtracked off of it, but have kind of learned some things. And so um, I, I'm curious, two questions, if you could talk a little bit about your learnings on this area, and then also um, what was it like to, to, to make such a, a vulnerable, but just, you know, important statement about what you've learned. Yeah, that's super fresh, Tony. We like I know. posted about it yesterday. <laughs> we're end of October as we're recording. Um, yeah, this has been an ongoing learning experience for us for like over a year. We've we, you know, speaking of kind of the valid and critical feedback, um, yeah. we began hearing like, hey, <laughs> um, you use the term modern day slavery and you should really consider the impact that that has on communities of color, you know, to Mm. to use that terminology. Is it accurate? Is it triggering? Um, Is it honoring to, to the history of that community? Um, And so for over a year, we've really been moving away from that language. And um, at this point um, have pretty much wiped all of our, you know, our website and our, I mean, except for historical blogs, but sure. um, like our current messaging, we've really removed um, slavery, enslaved, even abolitionist language from our, from our messaging, um, which is primarily challenging because so many of our partners use that language. They're yeah. doing great work and they're using that messaging. And um, so it's a little tough because we're saying, okay, this is the choice we have made for our organization. We don't want to shame anyone for using or continuing to use that language at this point. Um, but this is this is the choice we're making and why. And we're not going to act like we've never said that before. You know, well, of course, right. No, right. sometimes do is like... Um, you know, anyway, we'll, we'll, we will own like, okay, in the past we have used this language, but we are making the decision to, to move away from that language because, um, there's a number of reasons, you know, when we look at trafficking, it, the victims of trafficking are primarily and overwhelmingly individuals of color and indigenous communities and LGBTQ. And so, I know it can, it's, it's a, it's problematic. I'm this white woman who's leading this organization and to, to go around kind of toting the language of modern day slavery when historically slavery was a legal institution. It was a legal and highly lucrative institution that much of America is built on. Um, Of course. Yeah. And then when we're talking about trafficking, trafficking is illegal everywhere. Um, so these are, you know, just fundamentally two very different institutions when slavery was, was legal and defended and, um, upheld for centuries. And with trafficking, 
um, you know, apart from traffickers, you're not going to get a lot of pushback on like, you know, legalized trafficking. It's right. a, we should, we should, uh, you know, regulate it and, and make it taxable and make traffickers business owners. Like no one's, yeah, no one's arguing that, right. for that. Um, so yeah, we just, we, we've been examining the differences there and, and what we, how we might be alienating some of the communities who are most impacted by this issue simply through our language because language is powerful. Yeah. So that's well, a, yeah, yeah. Recent. I mean, super recent. I am curious if you've had any, uh, how the feedback has been, if you've gotten any yet, uh, how are your partners responding to all of it? Cause it's, I mean, uh, certainly it's a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's super recent. Um, I don't know. Have we posted on Dressember social media yet about it? I know it's on our you, blog. You have. Okay. You have. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. I know I reposted, um, Tori, our communications manager posted on her channel. So I reposted that. Um, I'll have to ask. I, again, I kind of wait for, for the feedback. Um, sure. Uh, that's a good boundary. You know, I, I, I don't think that you have to be on the front lines of like everyone's initial gut feedback. I think it's, I mean, I'll tell you that uh, my feedback is it's super impressive that for you and your team to be so bold and to say it and to not hide the past and to step forward in the future. And I so uh, kudos to all of you who who stepped out and said, we're going to do this and we're just going to suck it up and take it on the chin. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, in this season, too, of like nothing could be worse than taking on QAnon at this point. <laughs> like, How has that how has your look? I, I was debating about whether or not I was even going to bring up that word. Obviously, uh, uh, you know, like th- th- that's I. Oh, I have so many. But you, how are you doing with all of that? I have lots of feelings about it. But you go first. It's pretty. It's died down for the most part now. But yeah. when we first posted kind of our, um, we we posted like how QAnon is damaging to the to the anti-trafficking movement and and that was where we we had a lot of negative feedback from primarily non-dressember community members so a lot of people i think were like someone found it and shared it to their story and encouraged everyone to to come challenge us and then um there were some kind of weird personal attacks in there on me, which I mean, again, they're, they're not valid. I think when you, when you've been, yeah. when you, when you really lean into the discipline of, of how to handle feedback, it's like the, the mean and not valid comments are almost entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's, a, that shows me I'm in a good place with that, but um, yeah, it's, it's wild. It's, it's super wild. Um, and, a little bit scary because I don't doubt what that right. community is capable of doing if, if they decided to mobilize against us. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'll just say that I have been praying for your organization as it pertains to that. As, as I was, re- as I was reading through the comments, I just thought to myself, this just seems incredibly unnecessary. Like in, and that we live in a world today that, that w- where we have to have these kind of, um, it, it almost feels like we have to make a statement on social media about something once a month or once a week, or, I mean, just, it's just, a, it, it's gotta be insane. And, and so, you, you know, one of the other questions I wanted to ask you is about compassion fatigue, 
you know, how, how do you stay uh, in a place where, where you're still rooted to your mission, uh, especially in your role, one, I, I would guess that one of your job descriptions is to be the voice of, and to be the kind of the face of just Sember, you know, and, and I, I've read that you're an introvert. And so that's gotta be extremely uncomfortable already. Um, you know, like how do you stay rooted to, to what's important? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, I mean, it's, it is definitely a blessing that I, I very rarely feel a lack of compassion for the people we serve or like Mm. the, you know, compassion fatigue or the exhaustion. Um, although, I mean, I, we went to India a couple years ago and I came back just super overwhelmed, um, and had to have a few counseling sessions to kind of work through. Like, I mean, that trip made me feel like we were putting a bandaid on, uh, an open artery, you know, yeah. just learning about the, um, systemic and cultural misogyny, um, of India and, and the colorism, you know, racism within a, within a race, mm. um, that exists there and, and justifies and upholds this like flourishing system of exploitation. That was super hard. Um, so counseling is the way that I, you know, if I feel yeah. that fatigue, that's how I deal with it and kind of recenter, like, okay, I can't help everyone. We can't help everyone. We can't save the world. And that's not what we're, you know, we are trying to collaborate and bring others into this and, um, help as many people as we can. And that's important. You know, if we can help one person, then that's enough, you know, or, you know, we, it matters. Sure. Um, and then, I think, I think what I, you know, as an introvert, it, the hardest part for me is kind of compassion for, um, the critics or, um, the kind of uninformed people who are very vocal in this conversation, (laughs) Um, can, can I just tell you that you do a great job as you, you've clearly done a lot of these, a lot of interviews, cause you do a fantastic job of saying what you mean without, without, uh, without being so blunt that it could come across as evil, right? Like, or as, as like, uh, uh, basically what I hear you saying is I have very little patience for people that don't matter, right. <laughs> to, to our mission, but you said it in such a better way than that. So kudos to oh, you. Oh, thanks, Tony. Yeah. I, you know, you, um, you, you, you learn to be diplomatic in a role like this. I think like, <laughs> never, never interested in a career in politics, but sometimes I feel like I, I could go that route if I needed to from a, from a articulation standpoint. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Does that answer your, answer yes, your question? Yes, it does. Was there it more? does. I, okay. I'm sorry. I sidetracked us a little bit no? on that. Um, it, it was, uh, it was a perfect, it was, it was a really perfect answer. And, and I imagine is important to, to stay in, in, um, in, in your rhythms. And, and I, I, you know, I, I think that that's important for all of us. Um, so seven years in $10 million, incredible things. Um, what have you learned about God in the last seven years through this organization? I, I, I'd be really interested in hear about that. How has your faith life changed in this process? Um, 
I think the biggest thing, the most personal thing for me is I have seen redemption in action. Mm. You know, I've seen my pain and my, um, you know, something, my experience of sexual abuse was just a great source of shame for me for most of my life. And to see that totally turned on its head that, that it's easy for me to talk about now that it's, um, liberating for others to hear me talk about, um, and that it would compel me into work that is helping so many people is just incredibly beautiful and incredibly redemptive that, you know, the way I see it, God used this awful, painful experience to bring such beauty and freedom to me and to so many other people. That's like the biggest and coolest thing, I think. Well, and I, I think, um, I, God specializes in redemption. And I, I think that that's an incredible testimony to your story and to what you're doing. And, um, and I know that we're all very appreciative of that. Um, what, what does the next season of uh, Dress Summer, when, when you begin to think about 2020 or 2021 or, you know, the next five years, what are the things that you think and pray about as it pertains to this movement? And, and how can we be praying too? Because I, I, I know a lot of my listeners are would mostly identify as Christian and, and um, they're prayer warriors. And so a lot of them would love to pray for you and for your organization. What are some of the things that they can be praying about? Yeah, I, thank you for asking that. I appreciate that. Um, I think, you know, the next three to six months has been on, on my mind a lot <laughs> sure. as, a, as a leader and leading a, a, a team here. Um, we you know, 90, 90% of our funding comes in, in December. So we have been fine. We, we, um, you know, most of that goes to resourcing our partners and then we retain a very small percentage to, to operate our team and, and keep the lights on and make sure people are eating. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but we spread that throughout the year. And so now, um, we are really about to see the impact of COVID on, on the campaign and, you know, this being an election year and uh, anything that might go on with the, the economy or the stock market in the next couple right. of months, all of that has a direct impact on giving and fundraising. Um, and then with all of the like very important racial justice conversations we're having, um, there's just a lot going on. And so we are anticipating, um, a hit to our numbers that we might see lower participation, lower giving, and um, we can weather that to an extent. Um, but I think because I'm someone who like, you know, strategic thinking is kind of my, my wheelhouse. And so for months I've been thinking ahead to like, um, you know, plan, plan B, C, D and E where um you know, depending on how things go, where, where, or who is going to have to take, take the heat, um, on some of that. So that's, that's a tough spot to be in. And, and it's a, yeah. a fairly new experience for me because, you know, fortunately we've just continued to grow until, 
potentially this year. So all our goals are just to plateau from last year. Like, okay, if we can hit the same numbers, that would be, um, that would be great. And we would be fine. Um, at the same time, when you look at trafficking and some of the early statistics that are coming out during COVID, it is a dire and urgent situation. Like I'm telling our, our community or we're communicating to our community that this is not the year to sit out, like as overwhelmed as you might feel, um, you know, okay. On the one hand, we have a lot of compassion and empathy for anyone who's going through financial trouble, unemployment, or, you know, people have lost loved ones during this season to COVID or to other um, causes and, and, and can't even grieve their death in the, in the way that we would normally do with the community and a, you know, a big service or anything like that. So um, for, for those of us who are doing okay, you know, like we've not lost our jobs, we're, um, we're not grieving losses of other, of other sorts, or maybe we are, but we feel energized through that to, Mm. um, to advocate for others in vulnerability. This is a a critical time for, for those who can and want to step up to do so. Um, because traffickers are not sheltering in place, you know, they're not (laughs) taking a break. They are, um, adapting to the market. They are absolutely recruiting children through social media and through, other online outlets um, with children spending so much time online. Um, A lot of the demand is moving online um, for like customers as well. There's been a huge surge in um, pornography use over the last six months um, because everyone's home. And so when, when that demand surges, the supply um, traffickers, you know, meet the the demands with supply um so yeah just the the early statistics we have um are from the national human trafficking hotline and there's been like you know a 80 percent increase in likely sex trafficking situations uh reported um there's been a um 50 percent increase in the number of calls for emergency shelter um a 40 percent increase in crisis situation calls. So if someone calls and they need immediate assistance, either from law enforcement or um, medical assistance, or, you know, they are in crisis, they need some sort of service in the next 24 hours. Um, So all of these numbers are just spiking. And Mm -hmm. most of those numbers are just from the first eight weeks of, of sheltering in place. So there's still a lot we don't know about the impacts of this season. But it makes sense because when you when you look at a crisis that has made all of us vulnerable in some way, um, people who had been in vulnerability before this crisis are just made exceptionally vulnerable. So even kind of on the other end of the um, trafficking uh, spectrum of work with survivors, a lot of the survivor clients that our partners work with um, had been working in retail jobs or um, restaurant jobs. And so they, 80% of them are unemployed or working reduced hours. And um, so for the first time we did, um, we, we did a, an off season fundraising cycle back in May and were able to provide cash assistance to survivors in crisis, Um, something we've never done, but it was just, that's where the need was. And, and we were helping primarily um, individuals with, children, um, 
and yeah, these, these survivors have, they don't have the safety net that we have, you know, so many of us, we would have 10 people, 10 places we could go to before we ever found ourselves living in our car or, or homeless. Um, and we, we have savings, we have the wherewithal to access unemployment or, you know, just all the resources that might exist to us. Um, it, it's challenging for, for people who, again, might be immigrants to this country or just facing other challenges. I think that's really important. And one of the things that uh, we've been talking about a lot is that prolonged stress turns the cracks in our lives into canyons. And, and I was in the military for a number of years, and that was something that we experienced on deployment. And COVID has kind of become the deployment that America never really wanted, and so or the world, rather, never even wanted. So I, I think that that's really important to think about. People who were already dealing with pretty big canyons, now it must feel like different continents. And, and so that's, there's a lot to pray for there for sure. And, and to, to do something about, cause there's opportunities to do stuff. So I know that my, my friends and my listeners are going to want to connect with you on the interwebs. Where is the best place for them to start to learn more about you and more about dress Sumber? Yeah. I mean, Instagram is probably our main, our main channel. So dress Sumber on Instagram or I'm on there, Blythe Hill. Um, our website is full of resources. You know, mm-hmm. we, we really consider it our role, not only to provide a way to fundraise, but also to really equip people with resources and reliable data around this issue so that people can feel really comfortable. Um, you know, we're giving people a language to talk about an issue that not everybody wants to talk about. So giving people access points to the conversation through, um, ethical fashion, or, you know, we have an ethical fashion directory on our site. We have a blog with, at this point, probably thousands of articles that you can just search by keyword if you want to look at a specific um, issue within trafficking. Um, and then we also have a whole fundraising toolkit with um, ready to share social media graphics, um, 31 days of statistics, um, templates for you know, inviting your community to, to be part of the impact you want to make through your campaign, all sorts of stuff on there. Yeah, absolutely love it. And uh, we'll, we'll link to all that in the show notes. Um, and if you're in the Centerville area and you want to get on a team, I know my wife would love to have you on hers. She's uh, she's getting excited. We're all getting excited about the upcoming uh, December, December season. And, and I'll be wearing my ties. So, you know, we'll, we're, we're going to get it done. Um I always like to ask people one final question and it's an advice question, right? So if you could go back uh, to the very first time you put on a dress, December 1st, and you could talk to that younger version of yourself, what advice would you give her? Um, just to clarify, is this the first time I put on a dress for the style challenge or the first time I put on a dress for the campaign? Either way you want to answer it. I don't think I'd tell myself anything the first time I put on a dress um, because that might've there's this, I don't know what the exact expression is, but like we wouldn't do half the things we do if we realized how much work it actually is. Right. Um, So, you know, sometimes it's good to be naive. Um, So the first day of the campaign, um, probably just hang on. Mm. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Yeah. 
but if, if we're talking to other people who might be on day one of their journeys, um, I think there's a lot to be said for small beginnings Mm. where we want to, we want to jump to the big, exciting success right away. And, um, you know, most success stories are 10 years of small steps. It takes a really long time to become an overnight success. <laughs> yeah. It's just crazy. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. Well, I thank you so much for being so generous with your time today and for the work that you're doing and how you're inspiring so many people. And uh, I just deeply appreciate it from Aww. the bottom of my heart. Thanks, Tony. No, it was, uh, I had a great time chatting with you. What an amazing conversation with Blythe. I'm so thankful for her heart, her intentionality, the way that God has used her to lead such an important movement. Don't forget, you can join. There's still plenty of time to get signed up before December 1st. Be a part of my wife's December team. You can also start your own December team if you want to get engaged that way. So many different ways to serve and uh, and just be reminded that a dress or a tie can change the world. I'll be wearing uh, bow ties and ties Uh, throughout December to support my wife. You can see all of that on my social media, Instagram specifically at TWMilt. If you want to contribute, uh, all the links will be up there and in the show notes. So we're excited to be on this journey with you. As always, I'm incredibly thankful that you give us the opportunity to share these messages, that you give us the opportunity to connect with you. And every time you leave a rating or review, it helps more and more people find us. We're trying to get to 100 ratings by the end of the year. So if you can do anything uh, to help us today with that, I greatly appreciate it. Do that on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. Look forward to connecting with you guys real soon.